Jesus began uh, in Matthew chapter 5, back in verse 17, communicating something about the law. And he, he wraps up this section here today with these two additional statements. But I just want to reframe this, and then we'll walk through 38 through 48. He gets into verse 17, and he says, Do not, come, I think, to Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so he tells them, in essence, this is what you do with the law. This is how you interpret it. This is how you apply it. This is the difference that it's going to make in your life. And so he's systematically moved through, and he's addressed a number of things that as they would have heard them, they would have said, oh, man, that's, those are my toes there, Jesus. And Jesus is like, I know those are your toes. I stepped right on them. I saw them. I knew those are your toes. And you're like, well, it hurts. He's like, I know it hurts, but we have to see his word through. We have to understand his word and understand that as you have been offended these last weeks, so too those Jesus spoke to were offended. But if we give ourselves over to the understanding that Jesus applies to the law, then we'll see it begin to affect permanent change in our hearts. And so I just want to say that to you, communicate that to you, that to be a people that are a Jesus people, people submitted to him, we have to be a people that hear his word, that take his word seriously and apply his word to our lives and submit our lives to him each and every moment. And that has not changed even in these last two statements. Now, beginning in verse 38, Jesus communicates something that, that most of us like. Like, we like this idea. So Jesus goes out and he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so we hear that and we're like, oh, that's right, dang, right. You step on my foot, I step on your foot, right? I had a uh, social studies teacher in, in uh, freshman year of, of high school and she would say, are you guys more of a New Testament class or an Old Testament class? Like, what do you mean? She's like, you know, when somebody wrongs you, are you like, it's okay, or do you want to get back at them? And, and we had some internal debate in the class, and we decided that by and far that we like to get back at them. And so we were in favor of kind of this eye for an eye mentality, and it's a public school, and she said, this is great, this is what I am, and so uh, I will not be merciful with your grades if you're lazy in my class. And we said, well, hold on, hold on. A New Testament idea, we like that. Grace and mercy abound. So Jesus comes into this, and, and he communicates to a people from this, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this understanding that as we look at it, we say, okay, this is what this is. So as Jesse walks up and, and he knees me or punches me in the stomach, I get to do the same thing back to him, and that's only fair, right? Well, what the Old Testament provision was doing, what it was in, uh, put in place for, was a limitation of private vengeance, it was a limitation of private vengeance. And so if I go out and I punch Jeremy Connington in the face, that he is limited, according to this Old Testament prescription, the only vengeance he is able to take or the limit of that vengeance would be returning to that in kind. And what this also did was it removed personal vendettas. It removed personal vengeance. And so I couldn't go out and do that to him, but it was handed over and there would be a decree or an edict given for the limitation of the vengeance that I was able to have seen exacted upon him. So Jesus goes in, he says, look, you've heard it said this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we like that. That keeps everything running on an even keel. So Jesus says, okay, but just understand this. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. They had the same issue that you and I have. When someone does something to us, they do something physically to us, 
They say something about us. They say something about our spouse. They say something about mama, right? We have this sense that we've got to make this right. And Jesus offers this teaching that completely runs roughshod over the sense of entitlement and enlightenment that we place in our own lives. His word to us is do not resist the one who is evil. Let me just go and throw out a couple of caveats to those who are thinking about stepping up and walking out of the room. Jesus is not building in this an understanding of pacifism. He's not building an understanding of pacifism. I think you can get there biblically. That's not what this passage is about. He's not building an understanding of the state and saying the state has no ability to wage war or to defend itself. He's not doing that. He's not even saying that the private Christian doesn't have the ability to defend those in need. And so if you see a child being abused, he's not telling you, don't resist them, just let that abuse continue, let it go on. He's not communicating any of those things. What Jesus is doing is speaking to our heart that so quickly wants to jump to avenging wrong perpetrated against us. Whether it be something someone said or something someone did. And his word is, do not resist them. Do not resist them. And what he goes on to give us are four illustrations of this command of non-retaliation. And that's what we see in this. They're not, this is what you do if someone slaps you. This is what you do if someone steals your shirt. This is what you do if someone does this. These are illustrations of what it might look like not to resist the evil one right? So he goes in the first one. He said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. So just imagine this. If, if Pastor Jose is up here and, and he walks up to me and I just lean over and I go, bam! And I just slap him across the chops, right? <laughs> what would happen? If he's been listening to this sermon, maybe he turns the other cheek. If not, he, he cold cocks me, knocks me on the ground, <laughs> right? We're going to play this out afterwards. But what is Jesus communicating? Is he saying, look, if somebody comes up and they start beating on you, you just stand there and you take it like a man or you take it, you know, like a, like a fence post? No. In essence, what he's displaying here isn't physical violence, although he uses that as an example, but he takes an example firmly rooted within the first century. So it would have been a prime insult to come up to somebody and to slap them across the face, to take the back of my hand and to drive it across their cheek. And so what Jesus is arguing instead is when someone insults you and you have this overriding desire to return in kind, don't. Don't. This is what Jesus said, but do we believe it? We don't believe it on social media. We don't believe it when we call our friends and we're talking bad about people. We don't believe it in downtown Dallas traffic. You have a buy on that if you're reading the footnote. My footnote. Sin for you, not for me. But do we believe this? It's hard, and it's supposed to be. When you are offended, when you are slandered, when you are ridiculed, 
And when someone you care for is, Jesus' word is do not retaliate in kind. So he goes to the next one. He said, if someone would, would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And so what we see in this is uh, the typical wardrobe for any man, and this would be awesome. It's just kind of this two-piece wardrobe. And so you have a, a long shirt that kind of flows down to kind of mid-shin or whatever, and then you would have this square piece of cloth that you could fashionably wrap around your waist or you know, kind of don over your head, and it would doubly serve as a pillow and a blanket. And so it's utilitarian. And so what Jesus says is somebody comes up to you and they enter into a legal proceeding and they seek to take away this, this snazzy undergarment that you're wearing. Don't just let them take this, but let them take the outer covering as well. Do not retaliate. Do not retaliate. This is what he's calling them to. And he said, but, but, but Jesus says, do not retaliate. So he moves to the third example. He said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Within the day that Jesus was riding, it would be commonplace and it would be acceptable for a Roman soldier to walk up. And so he walked up to see Holly and he said, Steve, I need you to carry my stuff. We're going to go for a mile. Now, at the end of this Roman mile, at the end of a thousand paces, Steve has no obligation to this person to continue on. In fact, what would have been customary and acceptable is for Steve to say, set the pack down and say, you're a no good Roman. You're quite terrible. I hate you. I hope to never carry your pack again. I hope you fall in a big hole and die. <laughs> and the guy says, that was only 990 paces. Steve's like, oh, 10 more. Hold on. <laughs> Jesus says, you get to the end of this time of impressment. You get to the end of the time where they have forced you to serve them and you serve them more. You're displaying grace. You're displaying mercy, and you're giving over and above what is required of you. I can tell you that personally, for people I don't enjoy being around, very careful to not say despise, very careful, practice that several times, did not say I despise them. For people I do not enjoy being around, I like to do the minimum. I like to do what is observable and what is would be, in their mind, acceptably minimalistic. And I'm wrong when I do that. And we're all wrong when we engage in this. What he calls us to, in the midst of this, is to do so much more than we are required. And to do so graciously. One of the things we tell our kids every day, and I hate that we say this because it comes back on me all the time, is that there's only one way to obey, and that is all the way, right? All the way, right away. And what's the last one? Yeah, with a cheerful spirit. We say with a happy heart. It's just I can say it much faster with more venom. <laughs> a happy heart. <laughs> right? But man... What if we were applying that same type of dictum, that same type of teaching to our own lives? That if when we were out and we're serving someone, we don't do so in a way as to minimize its effect or its, its kind of draw on us, the exhausting draw. But in the midst of being forced into service for someone else, we see our service as a service unto the Lord and we do more than is required of us. So look at the fourth thing Jesus says in terms of 
what it is to not resist the one who is evil. Jesus says, Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one from whom, uh, the one who would borrow from you. So this is something we all encounter. Man, if you drive anywhere, then you encounter. If you go in most stores, if you've traveled very much or just been here in Greenville, you're going to encounter somebody that wants something from you, right? So Jesus says, this is a situation. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is a situation that we, that we find ourselves in. You're out, and somebody comes up to you, and they say, man, can I get $5? I just need to make it to Dallas. Can I get this? I just need to make it there. Can I get this? I just need to do this. I've got this bill. I've got this ailment. I've got this thing going on. And so we, we know this, right? And where, does most, where do most of our minds go? You're going to use that on drugs and alcohol. I just know you are. You're going to use this on drugs and alcohol. When I was in college, we had a, had a guy knock on our door uh, at least uh, two or three times a week. His name was Jackie. And Jackie would come to, no, he was streetwise. Um, so Jackie would knock on our door, and he would not ask for $5. He knew we were poor college students, and so he would ask for a quarter. So one day I got up some gumption. I said, Jackie, what good is a quarter going to do you? I'm happy to give it to you, but what good is a quarter? He said, that's a great question. You know, I ask for $5, I don't get any. I ask for a quarter, and I always get it. I get a quarter from you, and a quarter from your neighbor, and a quarter from your neighbor, neighbor, and a quarter from your neighbor, 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 neighbor. Pretty soon I got $5. I said, and Jackie, I was not kind at the time. I said, Jackie, I, su I suppose you're going to go buy alcohol with that whenever you get that. And so he lifts up his shirt and he says, no, look, man, I have my whatever out. I can't drink anymore. All right, then. That was delightful. I don't remember what organ it was, but apparently it was important enough for Jackie to mean that he could no longer consume alcohol without it. <laughs> All I remember is his gaping scar and thinking, I can never unsee that. Here's $5. Don't come back for a while. But one of the things we do in the midst of when somebody asks something of us, we begin to suspect what their motivation is and kind of what they're going to do with it. And we give to them if we suppose that what they want it for is justifiable and worthy, right? You're going to provide for your family? Okay, we can give to that. You're going to buy food? Okay, we can give to that. You're going to do what with it? No, 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 no. We can't give to this. You look like you're healthy and able to work. Why aren't you? you? You're able to be articulate and have conversation. Why aren't you engaged in something productive instead of being a leech and a drain on society? This is where our minds go. Jesus places us in the midst of this. Now look what he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us, give them exactly everything they ask for. When I was doing uh, research on this this week, I encountered two or three commentators who said that they all referenced this guy in Cambridge who read this verse and was convicted that anytime somebody asked him for something, he had to give them everything. And so this guy ended up living in an apartment with a bunch of alcoholics and spending all of his money on their alcohol and himself going into personal bankruptcy because he gave them everything they ever asked for anytime they ever asked for it. Jesus is clearly not communicating that. But what Jesus is communicating to us is that our hearts have to be open to generosity towards others, others whom we would prefer to see as unworthy. Do not resist the evil one. So you look at this and you say, well, this is just ridiculous. There's no actual application for this. This has never actually happened. And, and I have to be the exactor of vengeance. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 19, that God 
holds vengeance and instructs us to wait upon him to exact it. We are not perfect people. And we are not omniscient people. We don't know everything. Every time someone says something about us, or we hear that they've said something about us or or done something to us, we cannot know their heart. We can't. We can know ours. And we can know our response. And the response we are called to is that which we see in Jesus described in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 20. He says, For what credit is it to you if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But what if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to you, for for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Why? So that you may follow in his steps. Jesus suffered so that we would gladly enter into suffering. Verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And Peter sums it up. He says, by his wounds you have been healed. The suffering that Jesus endured, he calls us to walk in. So we come back to this instruction. Do not resist the evil one. These four illustrations aren't aren't things that you're looking for, these things to show up in your life, but Jesus is working in our mind godly wisdom so that in the midst of different situations, we are submitting ourselves not to the ways of man, but to the ways of God and returning in kind of godly wisdom, which looks like not retaliating, not getting even, not putting people in their place. It looks like patiently enduring suffering. This is hard. So Jesus has people there and their heads are down and they're moping and this has been difficult for them to hear. So they're suffering. But then he goes into verse 43 and he just continues to drive it home. He says, if you've heard it said that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now you can search the Old Testament and you're not going to find this quotation. You see, someone sometime along there has added on the latter half, which was clearly the way that they were behaving, and that's how it got added. And so it's one thing to love your neighbor, to love your countrymen, to love your brother or sister in Christ, to love those who are close to you, to love those who you have something in common with, and it is easy to hate your enemy, right? If you have somebody you don't like, somebody who doesn't like you, somebody who talks bad about mama or somebody who ran over your dog, like it's easy to hate this person. But Jesus comes in the middle of it and he says, look, you've heard it said that you can love the people who are easy and hate the people that are hard to love. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When we were studying the book of 1 John together, John had this great definition of what 
hate was. And, and, and hate is effectively withholding love. And so we recognize that, that loving our enemies is not merely being passive-aggressive towards them, right? It's not running through and unfriending them on Facebook. It's not choosing a different sphere or circle to be in. Love your enemies. Jesus, in Luke 23, 34, he's hanging on the cross. And he has this excellent moment where he models for us what it looks like to love those who persecute us. Simple prayer. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the midst of tremendous anguish, tremendous pain, in the midst of dying at the hand of his creation, his plea is for their forgiveness. Not to be rescued, not to have it ended, not that they would get their just desserts, but his prayer is for their forgiveness. And so when Jesus models for us what our hearts look like, we are not those who delight in seeing evil come upon those who pay evil towards us, but we are those who, following the lead of Jesus, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What does he say? He goes on, he says, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Matthew, recording the words of Jesus, says, look, you need to understand something about our God. He is long-suffering. He is gracious and compassionate. And God causes this sun to rise not just on you, Right? There's, there's this sense in this lie that we kind of buy into and say, God is most well-pleased in me, and he, he hates this guy over here who I despise. But God, in his common grace, is causing the same sun to bring down and to shine upon him and to shine upon you. In a day and time when Jesus was writing where if, if the rains didn't come, if the sun didn't shine enough, then there was no crop, then, then people would starve. God says it this way. God sends rain on the just person, the person who is, is passionately following Jesus, and he sends rains upon those who aren't, displaying his common grace and goodness to all. Where do we think we get a buy then? Where do we think we get omitted? If our God would graciously display his love and provision for those who hate him, if Jesus would boldly display what it is to pray for those who persecute him in the midst of dying and hanging on a cross, can I ask you simply, what place does a grudge find in your heart? There is no place for the grudge in the heart of the Christian. There's a place for a hurt. When people are mean to us or to our family when they have egregiously sinned against us and caused us pain, man, there is a place for hurt. And I'm not telling you it's easy. It is not easy to love those who have sinned against you. It is not even easy to forgive them. But it's what he calls us to. And his grace will sustain us in the midst of this. 
But do we believe him? And do we follow him in this? As rain falls on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. So Jesus really wants, to, wants them to understand exactly what he's called them to. There are two groups of people that they would have generally looked at and said, they're worthless, they're terrible. First group would be the tax collector. would be the tax collector. I want you to just think, imagine if we had an occupying force here in Greenville, Texas, and then your neighbor went to work for this occupying force, and his job was to come knock on your door and say, you owe money to them, and I'm going to take it from you. Anybody love that neighbor now, Right? He can mow his yard, I'm mowing right on the line, right? And so this is what the tax collectors are doing. Their own country, countrymen taking money from them and giving it back to the enemy, to the Roman Empire. And then he has the Gentile. These people who are just, they are not the chosen people of God. They are not worthy. They are not valid. They, are, or they, are not, they have no worth. So he comes to, into it in verse 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What, what have you really done if you love those who love you? Man, I love my kids most of the time. And, and they're especially easy to love when they're adorable, right? Like they come up and they do something really cute, which is less and less for some of them. But I'm just saying, <coughs> it's easy to love them when they're adorable. It's easy to love people who love you, who are kind, and they don't want anything from you. But what reward do we really have from that? That's a question Jesus asks. And so they would be sitting there, and they're pondering that. And Jesus says this. He says, do not even tax collectors do the same. And I'm sure in their mind they're thinking, no, those guys are soulless. They don't love anybody. But the point Jesus is making is, look, anyone can love those who love them. We look at the alt-right, and we would say, man, those people are largely unlovable. But they love those who love them. We would look at ISIS on kind of a global scale and say, those guys are unlovable. They perform mass atrocity. But they love those who love them. When we withhold love, from those who don't love us, we're doing the same thing that those groups are doing. What gain do we have when we only love those who love us? We have no gain. We're not following the pattern, the example that Jesus gave us. So he goes on, verse 47, he says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so it's very common in this day, you come up, and so Anna's walking on the street, and I greet her, and I say, great uh, peace of God be upon you. And so I'm extending this greeting upon her. I would do this towards her. And so the, the request that I'm asking of God is that his peace, that his favor be upon her. But he makes the question, or he offers this question. He says, what if you do it if you're only doing it to people you like, and you never do it to anybody you don't like, which was exactly what they were engaging in? You can read in different rabbinical writings that they would not offer this same type of uh, extension to a Gentile or to somebody else. They would offer one that wouldn't see them asking God to do something good for somebody they didn't care for. 
They wanted to keep themselves in their communities of faith, keep themselves along people who had the same ideology, the same desires, the same worship patterns, the same value system. Man, we do the same. We like to be around people who don't cost us anything, people who who don't tax us in, in our personalities, people who are easy and don't ask anything of us. This is who we like to be around. Man, this is who I like to be around. People who aren't constantly demanding something more of me or from me. So he throws it out. He says, do not even the Gentiles do the same. You got the tax collector who they despise, the Gentile who they think has no worth or value. And these guys are doing the exact same things they are. Now, greetings aren't such a big deal in our day. We tend to say, hey, how are you? What's up? Hey, how's it going? How are you? We don't really want to know the answer to that question. It's just something we say. If you haven't figured that out yet, that's why you don't have any friends. But he tells us in this, or he asks us in this to evaluate our behavior to those we don't normally associate with. Those that on the basis of our behavior and our attitudes and the things we say, we consider to be worthless or not worthy of our time, our energy, or our effort. Jesus calls us to be non-retaliatory. And then he calls us in terms of our love, and he says, don't build fences around your love. Don't build fences. Don't set limitations on your love Don't look at those around you and say, this person is worthy of my love and this person is not. Be be a person who freely extends their love upon all those people God has ordained for you to come in contact with. And when we are a people who do that, we are displaying this higher righteousness that he's been calling us to. Now, if you were to look back in Matthew chapter 5, right before Jesus enters into this section, he told the people that unless their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's what he hit them with in verse 20 of chapter 5. So then he moves in and he gave them six concrete examples of what this higher righteousness looks like. What it looks like in terms of anger, what it looks like in terms of lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving their enemies. And over and over again, he's showing them what this sense of higher righteousness looks like. So that when he gets into verse 48 of chapter 5, he says these words, you therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You want to have higher righteousness? You want to have the righteousness that our God calls us to? Be perfect perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Leviticus 19.2, we hear these words, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And what we would have expected Jesus to utter in Matthew 5.48 is be holy, right? But he doesn't. And here's the thing. The Pharisees and the scribes had come to believe that holiness is primarily a command to be demonstrated in the externals. And so this is what this looked like. Not murdering people, sending our wives away in a really specific kind of way to divorce her, not committing adultery, 
And so they, they understood holiness as being a set of external actions and behaviors that did not find its overflow in the heart. So if Jesus had come out in Matthew 5, 48 and said, you know, your holiness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, be holy as your God in heaven is holy, then the scribes and the Pharisees would have stood up and said, oh man, we got this locked up in spades. This whole time you were beating us over the head, we've got holiness, we've had it for a week and a half. Jesus, spit it out. But instead he gets in there and he says, be perfect. Now the word he uses is so incredibly helpful and instructive to us in our hearts. If you'll notice the constant pattern over these six things, Jesus goes and he describes something externally. He says, you've heard it said, don't do this. But then he moves to an internal. He says, but be this internally. So when he uses this word perfect, the word telos in the Greek, what he's giving us a picture of is don't merely be those who your righteousness is a set of externals, but be those who have the externals matched well with a set of internal, uh, internals to match. That your holiness come from a place internally where God has affected and changed your heart and made your heart to beat for him. And then the overflow of this heart that is changed for God naturally moves to display these externals. So you find yourself naturally being a person who is engaged in these externals because you are first a person who has had their heart changed by God in the internal. So when he gets into Matthew 5, 48, he's not saying, don't ever do anything wrong ever again, or I'll strike you from heaven with a lightning bolt. None of us would move. None of us would draw breath. What he gets into this and says is your holiness can't merely be these concrete externals, but it's got to reside in your heart. What does this do in us? And I can tell you what it does in my heart. I'm simultaneously so incredibly thankful for the grace of God and so incredibly devastated at my own sinfulness. I'm thankful for God's grace because I recognize my own sinfulness. That each day I am warring against sin in my life, in my thoughts, in my actions, and welling up within my heart. I want my way, not just at Whataburger, but all kinds of places. I want my way in my family. I want my way in the church. I want my way in society. And when I see my way not coming to be a reality, it makes me angry. And so when I come across verses like this that say it's not merely enough to do the right thing where people can see it, but to do the right thing in your heart, I'm devastated. Because God has said before us, he has not violated law. We see his law as inviolable in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. But we see that it is God who works in us, according to Paul in Philippians 2. Paul tells us that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And what is God's will for us? What is God's desire for us? According to 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it is our sanctification. This is the good news for us today. These six statements of Jesus show in us that we are not a people who in and of ourselves are holy or faultless. But we are a people wholly dependent upon our great God.
of people who fail time and time again, of people who even though we're able to externally do things and fool everybody around us, there are times when our heart is so incredibly wicked and far from God. But can I tell you this? That God is working for your sanctification. This is why the Sermon on the Mount begins in verse 3 of chapter 5, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the man or the woman that comes into this place and says, I've got this locked up. I'm fine. I don't really need this. I just come here for certain social obligations. This person will never come to know Jesus. They may be good. They may be seen as righteous by everybody in our community. And they may give a boatload of money to altruistic causes, to churches, to nonprofits, to the poor and the needy. The person who receives the grace and mercy and the favor of our God is the person who is broken. And the person who in their poverty cries out to him, Lord, save me and make me whole. Would you join with me as we pray? God, help us to not be a people deceived that our righteousness could be merely external a set of things we do or don't do, say or don't say. That you hold our heart. So God, I pray that you would move swiftly into the heart of the one here this morning who doesn't see any failure on their part. They don't see any need for your righteousness to rule and to reign. Doesn't see the need for obedience to you. They have misunderstood what your forgiveness is. So God, I pray that you would offer a word of rebuke and correction to their heart, that you would call them to radical obedience and righteousness. Father, I pray for the lost person in here. They don't believe for a variety of reasons. So God, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be mightily at work in their hearts. That it would lead to conviction, to heart change. That they wouldn't seek to be good, but that you would make them good by the declaration of your word. The life of your son. And Father, I pray for us and the edification of your word, that it would build us to be a people who are whole and complete, daily surrendered to you, and that we would be agents for change. And so, Father, we pray these things in the name of our brother Jesus. Amen.